Hey, welcome to Sunday School. I'm glad you're here. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. You're listening to the Mills Sunday School Podcast. We are the college and 20-somethings ministry of New Life Church. Okay, well, I want to introduce um, our topic for this month is the four loves. And uh, there's in, in English, we have the word love. Everybody say love. And I can love my wife. She's over there. I can love my son. He's over there too. He's probably about to make a lot of noise. I could also love pizza. Or I could love Sunday school. Or I could love uh, some of my friends. And those are very different types of love. And the Greeks maybe had an advantage on us in that they, the Koine, the ancient Greek words, there was four words for love. Um, and I'll put them up here, storge, eros, phileo, and agape. So we're going to spend the next four weeks, uh, which will go into March, actually, and spend one Sunday per um, Greek word for love. And so today, we have the honor and the privilege of having Pastor David Grothy. Come on up here. He's going to speak about the parental type of love. Give him a big hand. Um, He really doesn't need too much of, of an introduction. He's speaking, spoken, spoken before. Uh, he's going to speak on the parental type of love. Him and his wife, Becky, have been in ministry for 30-something years. Eight. 38 years. So I'm not even 38. They've been in ministry longer than I've been alive, and probably maybe all of you combined. I don't know how old you guys are. Um, and they, they've, they've gone on the road and spoken at marriage and family conferences for something like 13 years you did that. Oh, yeah. And so very, he's, where I'm excited to have him, at when, when the topic of storge, parental, affectionate love came up, I thought of no other person besides David Grothy to speak. So, ladies and gentlemen, David Grothy. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. Let's make sure this is on. Yeah. How much we love uh, your gathering here. I just think sometimes I want to just come over here and fellowship every Sunday morning. I've got other responsibilities quite often on the, on the uh, church side of things. But I want to just say thank you for your faithfulness. Thanks for gathering. How many got to go to the retreat? Worthwhile, huh? I heard g- great things about it. Today, uh, in, in beginning this four-week series, I just want to give sort of a big overview. When we think about love, if I ask 50 different people in this room how to define love, I'd probably get 50 different answers because often it's interpreted how it makes us feel, how we feel when we hear the word love or what we think and how that makes us respond. The Apostle Paul gives us a pretty good overview in one or two passages, and I'd like for you to join me this morning. We're going to talk about love and highlight the four kinds of love. As Joe pointed out, eros would be the kind of love that is shared between a man and woman, between the sexes. It's a physical expression of love, and it has its appropriate place for physical expression. Phileo, the friendship kind of love, is a wonderful love that is only shared in that context of sincere friendship. Jesus said that no greater love has a man than that he would lay down his life for his friends. So friends and love have gone together since Jesus ever spoke about it. This kind of love that we're going to talk about today is is a very specific kind of love, storge. You can pronounce it two or three different ways. I don't want to overlook the other kind, phileo, eros, storge, 
and then agape, or the Greek word agape, which is God's love, the kind of love that only God can give us and express to us. Uh, Paul talks about it this way. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. This is the end of a great teaching on the expression of the Spirit of God, the gifts of the Spirit of God in the church. And he finishes it by saying, but eagerly desire the greater gifts, the most helpful gifts, and now I will show you the most excellent way. Paul is getting ready to teach us something about love in the context of being the most excellent, the best way. He finishes chapter 12 with that and then goes straight in to 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He had just talked about how the Spirit of God can be expressed in the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of a healing, the gifts of the word of knowledge, the gifts of the word of wisdom, the gifts of miracles, all kinds of expressions of the Spirit of God in our lives. But then he quickly amends that to say, we could do all that, but he says, I could have faith that could move mountains, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. So I want to start this in the context of, yes, let the Spirit of God move through you, walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, speak and minister in the Spirit. But he quickly adds that it's worthless. It's just like a sounding, tinkling cymbal making a lot of noise if we don't have love. I'm nothing. If I give everything that I have, all that I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Now, love is necessary for the exercise of the spiritual gifts in our life. We, we cannot fully express God's Spirit without love. And love is necessary, he says, for the exercise of great sacrifice, giving my body to be burned, giving away all that I have. I can't do that in reality without love. So I want you to think about how love and the love of God and walking in the love of God frames everything about our life. Without love, these things are of no value. Paul was pretty gifted. But he himself had to come back to the fact that if I can't love somebody, if I can't express love through my life, if I can't act and speak in love, everything I do is worthless. It might be good to ask ourselves, those of you that are uh, thinking about motivating and even going on a mission trip overseas to the Middle East, what's our, what's our motivation regarding these gifts in our life, the gifts of giving away and the gifts of expressing God's love. Is it love for God and His people? Or do we do what we do for personal recognition and influence? Oh, I need to go be seen and doing something, expressing, uh, giving my body and giving away stuff to the poor. Tonight there's going to be a really great event downtown called $5 Missions Banquet. Anybody going to participate in that? I thought about this all week because I committed myself to go tonight. I'm going down and I'm just going to be 
there and hug some folks and do what I can, clean up some tables, whatever needs to be done. But my motive, why am I doing this? What is my desire to go do this? Is it to be seen? Is it so people can watch me serve? Or is my motive to go and love people unselfishly, get out of the way, and get involved in doing the love of God? Now, here's something I want you to think about. Love is not just a noun. You know parts of speech? Sometimes love can be a noun in a sentence. But I want you to think now and reframe everything about love as a verb. Love has got to be expressed in our actions. Great songwriter, uh, Oscar Hammerstein and Richard Rodgers wrote great Broadway musicals. King and I, Oklahoma, Sound of Music. Maybe you've watched some of these old DVDs. But they started on Broadway and became movies. When they wrote The Sound of Music, the story of the Von Trapp family, there was one song in the Broadway show that never made it to the movie. Maria's singing the Do-Re-Mi songs and all the songs in the movie with the Von Trapp children, but one song that did not make the movie, that's one of my favorites, had these lyrics. A song is not a song until you sing it. A bell is not a bell until you ring it. Love was not put in your heart there to stay. Love is not love until you give it away. So I want you to think about your love and how you're expressing it. Love is only love when it's expressed and given away. It can be a noun all day long in your thinking. You can think of it in terms of definition. But in terms of reality, love is not really expressed until we can give it and do something with it away from ourselves. I want to say this about love. Oh, the message. I I love Peterson's translation of Paul here. He says, so no matter what I say or what I believe or what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Empty checking account. Zero balance in your life. Without love, nothing else is worthwhile. I, uh, I've thought a lot about the love that God has given to me and expressed to me. He loved me so much that my mother's younger sister, when I was a preschooler, my parents didn't have an expressed faith. They didn't attend church. My father just worked hard. My father was the hardest working man I ever knew, ever observed. I was their only child. I'm so grateful that they tried for six years and finally had their only begotten son. (laughs) Full of grace and full of truth. (laughs) Me, I'm just glad that they kept trying until I was born. My dad was 41 when I was born. My mother was 36. And then they stopped. And in those early years, I never observed anything related to the expression of faith or love, really, for that matter. My father worked very hard. He was an oil well uh, operator, oil well driller operator. He ran the drill truck that drilled holes to plant oil wells and to drill for oil and gas. He had a very limited education, but he had two really strong hands and a real strong back and a good work ethic. He was working 
He'd work 60, 70 hours a week for his job, and then he would work again. He would go landscape people's houses and spray extermination uh, fluid, and he would paint, and he would do yard work and all kinds of stuff. My dad just worked all the time. And as I was growing up, if I was ever going to maybe find time to be with him, I'd have to go with him on a job or spend the Saturday or the Sunday uh, helping him paint a house for extra money to support our family. But my mother and father never had any real expression of faith. My mother's little sister was born again and found the Lord early on in her marriage. It was a young wife and mother, and she was about 10 years or so younger than my mother. She would come by and pick me up and put me in the back seat of the car with her two daughters, my cousins, and we'd go off to church. I can remember this as early as preschool, like four and five years old. And I would hear the Word of God in Sunday school, and I would go and sit in the service in big church. And at seven years old, I came into big church one Sunday night with my aunt and uncle, and I looked up on the platform, and there in the baptismal tank full of water were my two cousins getting baptized. And I said to their father, who was sitting with me, why are they swimming in church? And at seven years old, he explained it to me in a way that I could understand that this is significant, that Jesus and the love of God have washed their sins away and all things are becoming new. And this is a sign of a new life in Christ. They've accepted his salvation. And I looked at him and I said, I want to do that. Sincerely. He explained it in such a way. He said, okay. They got out of the tank. The pastor... Pastor Adrian Condit preached a message. I was seven, and in a moment of time, I looked at my uncle, and we went to the altar, and he prayed with me and led me in a prayer to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and to ask for the Lord's love to cover me in my life. I went to church like that with them, and then all of a sudden there was a church closer to my home that built a new building, and my mother saw that I was interested in things spiritual and things musical, and they had this big musical uh, program at this church, and I could almost walk to it, but my mother would drop me off at the back door for Sunday school. I'd stay through, and then throughout my life, that was my going to church life. My parents came maybe if I had a solo at Christmas uh, or, or some choir special or something, but uh, it was not our family tradition to get in the car and go to church together. As a matter of fact, our family was really hard to define in that way because of my father's work ethic. He was always gone, and he, he just worked hard and, and made what he could. But when he was home and when my parents were in the same house, the thing that characterized our family home was not love. It was harshness and strife and arguing and pretty much always a big fight, a big argument. And at times, that argument would turn into something more. At table, at the kitchen table would turn, and food would be all over the floor, and stuff would be thrown, and kitchen utensils would turn into weapons, and other household items would be defensive and offensive weapons. And then there would just be often times when I'd have to pull my parents apart. 
Back then in, in those days, we just called it a big fight. But today in the 21st century, there's a new term that is used widely called domestic violence, which is what I observed and tried to stop. Nine, 10, 11 years old, I can remember I'm not a counselor and the only words that I had to say were, can't, can't, can't we work this out? Can't we not fight? And there would be nights that I would, in their separate bedrooms, my mother had a bed and my father had a bedroom and I had a bedroom in the middle, a little 900 square foot house, three bedrooms and one bath. And I would, I would climb into bed with my dad and hope he would go to sleep. And I'd put my arm over and hope he would go to sleep and not get up and start a fight. And then the next night I'd sleep with my mother and I'd put my arm over her waist and I'd hope that maybe she'd go to sleep and a fight wouldn't break out because I didn't want to go to sleep until everybody else was. And then I'd lay in my bed sometimes at night and I'd say, Lord, when I get married, I don't want to live like this. When I have a wife, when I have a family, I don't want there to be this yucky feeling in our atmosphere all the time of tension and harsh words and strife and fighting. That would be my prayer. Lord, when I get married, it sometimes was a prayer and sometimes it was a declaration and a vow. I'm not going to live like this. And I would pray for my children. I'm nine. And I would pray, Lord, when I get married, I don't ever want to have just an only child. I felt a little isolated because it was only me. Give me a striped shirt and a whistle, I could have refereed. I felt that way many times. I felt like I was calling plays and fouls and trying to keep the two teams, my mother and father, who were opposed most of the time, adversarial. I loved my mom so much. I loved my dad so much. But their, their life together was anything but happy. So I began to just, in my mind, say, Lord, all I want is a happy home. And what I'm about to share with you from the Word of God has to do more with what was in the desire of my heart as a kid. It, the genesis of it in me started observing a lack of real love in my own environment, in my home. I knew my mother loved me. I knew she sacrificed for me. She would take care of me. She would take care of my clothes and help me with schoolwork and make sure that I had something good to eat. I knew my dad loved me. I could feel his wet kiss some early mornings, like at 5.30 he'd get up and have to leave early, and I could feel him come in and give me a kiss right there on the cheek. But that was the last I saw him until about 10.30 the, the next, that evening. And often I was asleep by the time he came back home. I wanted to share that story with you because I don't know the frame that your family has fit in. The frame that has been around your experience of your family of origin. But I will say this. It is true that what we have observed and experienced often informs and influences the family that we go toward. The family you've come from often has a greater influence kind of psychologically or in an unseen way of what kind of family you're embracing for the future. If you're going toward a marriage and 
toward having children. I know it did for me. There was a moment in time when I wondered, am I ever going to have a happy family? My father, in all that hard work one night, was out on the job with, with eight other men. They were drilling a hole. They were going to do an experiment, a seismographic experiment under, underneath on the rock formations. The geologists were there. The explosive technicians were there. They were going to drill this hole and put in a certain amount of liquid explosive in the very bottom of an 80-foot hole, put a cap on it, and explode the rocks to see how they could better uh, recover oil if they could do some exploration. And sadly, before they got it all in the hole, that liquid explosive exploded. All nine men were killed instantly. The truck was mangled and blown up in the air and over some power lines and came back down. It was a big, big explosion. And my father, in just that quick, was gone. I had just turned 15. I just had my 15th birthday. And they came and got me and let me know I was at a rehearsal. Uh, there's been an accident. I came home. My mother was there kind of in shock. And, and I watched now, in one moment, a woman become a widow and a single mom in one minute. My mother, whose health was challenged to begin with, she'd had a brain tumor removed and had struggled with brain cancer. And here I was, a 15-year-old, and wanting to do what I needed to do, I went to work. I worked for three years all through high school, after school from about 3 to 10, trying to just make some money and make sure our family had what it needed, my mom. And then her sickness really uh, became pronounced when I had just turned 19 and a second surgery was unsuccessful and she passed away of another brain tumor. And I found myself at 19 wondering, okay, what am I going to do now? It's almost like the Lord said in my heart, all right, you now have this opportunity to move forward and embrace everything you've ever prayed about and everything you've ever wanted and missed in a family. And I was afraid. How am I going to die? I thought, okay, everybody in my father's side of the family has died tragically. My father was horrible explosion. His father had committed suicide. My father's brother had also had a tragic life and ended up taking his life in the hospital. There was that kind of history. And then on my mother's side of the family, everybody in my mother's family, including my little my mother's little sister that took me to church initially, she died at 35 years old. My mother died at 53. Her sister lived just a few years longer than that into six, at 60, again, died of brain cancer. So I'm thinking everybody on this family has died sick and everybody on this side of the family has died in some sort of accident or tragic thing. And the enemy began to whisper in my ears, how, I wonder how you're going to die. And I began to think that. And it was tormenting. I never said it to anybody. I never shared that fear. I never talked about it. I just kind of walked around caring. If a truck's coming down the road, I'm thinking, is that truck going to cross the line? That's it for me? Or I'd feel a pain or wonder, you know. I wonder. It was just tormenting. Until one day, I was with my college roommate at his home in Parker County, Texas. We'd gone down for a weekend. There was a prayer meeting. I knelt down in front just to pray. My mother had been gone now about <clears throat> four months. 
And this fear was eating me alive. And I heard a voice. I was kneeling over here on the piano side, just kind of on one knee. And I heard a voice behind me say these words very calmly, but very directly. The curse which has been on your family is stopped with your generation. And she began to quote, pastor's wife began to quote Galatians 3, a verse I'd read but never really heard. For Christ has redeemed us from the curse, the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, basically that the blessing of Abraham might come on those who would believe. Christ was crucified. He took our curse. And she said it again. The curse has stopped with your generation. I got up from that place of prayer that night and never, 40-some years later, I have never, ever been afraid about how I would die. I've never had a fear. I've never had a concern. I've never been tormented. I'm free. And at that moment, I was free then to embrace God's love in a fresh new way and a, and a love for my family. I want to say this to you about your family. Your mother and father really loved you. I had a friend that had six children. A man said, you must really love children. He said, no, I really love my wife. <laughs> I have four children. Here's the rest of the story. We were married three years. The doctor said, looking at my wife in her fifth month of pregnancy, she measured nine-month size. She was uncomfortable. And she had complained on the phone to her obstetrician, I really, I'm, I'm just out of breath and I can't swallow, I can't breathe. And he said, it's your first pregnancy, you'll be fine, come see me next week. She did, and he said, oh my. He said, we need to do a test, and they did a very grainy, imagine 34 years ago what an ultrasound looked like, or a sonogram, very grainy. Couldn't find but one baby, and finally she starts to kind of roll over, and he says, keep rolling. And he found back here a second baby. And he said, you're going to have twins. And after we kind of got our breath again, we were in two cars. We left. Becky went home, and I went back to my church office. And on the way down the street, I felt the Lord in my heart say, I heard you praying when you were nine years old that you didn't ever want to wish being an only child on any of your children. And now from the womb, none of your children will ever know what that means. It's kind of special for me. And when my girls have done this, as siblings do, from time to time, I've reminded them, stop arguing. This is the blessing of God to have a sister. <laughs> and with their brother. What are the qualities of love? Here's, here's the, the qualities, and I want to say this. The Lord doesn't necessarily give us a definition of love. Some of these things that we're going to say about love over the next few weeks can be interpreted as definitions, but here's what I want you to know. He gives us a description that then becomes an action. Can you, can you interpret it this way? Love is not just a definition, but there's a description that becomes an action. It, love is not only 
Love is something you describe with verbs because love is only described. It is not necessarily defined. Love is only love when it acts. So let's see now, how can we act in love? And it's the the way it's presented in the Word of God. So if you're looking at your Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, starting around verse 7, it goes on into this description. Love suffers long. Verses 4 to 7 say it this way. Love suffers long. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love does not, is not puffed up. It's not proud. It's not haughty. It's not rude. It's, it's in an, not in an ugly, indecent, unseemly, and unbecoming manner. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Is not self-seeking. Dr. Edward Lewis Cole, many years ago, He's credited with really being the father, kind of the unsung hero of the men's movement. Whatever Promise Keepers was, they look back to Dr. Cole and his work and his teaching. And he wrote a book called Maximize Manhood. And in there, I had, I had just circled and highlighted and colored this one statement. He says, love benefits others at the expense of self. Love benefits others at the expense of self. If I were to do kind of word opposites here, I would say up, you would say in, you would say cold, you would say love. Okay, I heard, I heard eight or ten words there. You were really tracking on up and down and in and out and hot and cold. I said love and I heard hate. I heard something else. I heard two things. Well, if we're thinking in the world sense, love and hate, that's not opposites, though. If love gives and is defined by God so loved the world that he, then what would be the opposite of that? Taking or not giving, withholding. Taking or not giving is the opposite of love. So, If Dr. Cole said love benefits others at the expense of self, then lust, and yes, lust is not just limited to a sexual, perverted kind of wanting to consume something physically. There's people that lust for money, lusting for power, lusting for control, the desire to have that. So love benefits others at the expense of self, and conversely, lust benefits others self at the expense of others. So I want you to think in terms of your love. How can in my family, how can I benefit the other person? How can the affection that storge love characterizes, how can I love them affectionately and show and by my actions communicate love to my family, to my spouse, to my children? Love is not provoked or easily angered. Dr. Phil and Oprah have come up with a new diagnosis, and I'm not kidding you. They actually had this on their program. A new diagnosis called intermittent explosive disorder. Intermittent explosive disorder. It's almost like a case of I can't help but get mad. I just can't help but blow up on people. Intermittent explosive disorder. You know what the Bible calls that? The flesh. 
just acting in the flesh, letting your mouth and letting your body do whatever it feels like it wants to do. It's not a disorder. It's sin. And sad to say that even among Christians, there are some that are even proud of giving people a piece of their mind and getting in the flesh daily and saying whatever comes. Let's just be now in love, benefiting others at our own expense. Here's one of the things that I wanted to share with you about family. You have got to learn how to believe the best, expect the best, receive the best. This is part of what love does. Love bears all things. This is 1 Corinthians 13. Love always believes and hopes and trusts all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. And we see that love is best defined by what it does and what it does not do. I think in a family, love is expressed by what it says and what it does not say. What we can not help but love and then refrain from Refrain our lips from speaking guile, as the psalmist would say. Put a watch over my mouth and a guard over my lips and let my words in my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord. That's kind of love expressing itself in a way of, of building up and strengthening and love that withholds harshness from saying the wrong thing. Love in a family is defined by giving and forgiving. Love in a family is defined by giving and forgiving. How many times have I had to be forgiven as a husband? And my children can tell you, if you would ask them, how many times their father has had to ask them for forgiveness because of the way that I spoke or the way that I was harsh or reactive or too direct. I've asked my children over and over for 30-plus years, Oh, could you please forgive me? I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have. I, 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 was, I was too reactive. Parents have got to model this for their children. A mom and a dad, a husband and a wife have got to be the model of, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Now, sometimes in our house, the joke is, I would say, Becky, I was wrong. Please forgive me. And she would turn and say, yes, you were. <laughs> and I do forgive you. My wife is today celebrating with our twin daughters in New York, celebrating the upcoming arrival of their younger sister's first child. And yesterday, in all of its glory, they had a baby shower at Anna and Stephen's home church where Stephen's mother is the pastor's wife and there were 200 plus women at this baby shower yesterday. I don't know how many are in this room, but imagine, just kind of let me use some verbs here. Italian, full gospel, spiritual prayer warrior women coming to celebrate my youngest daughter. There was food for days. 
I have the pictures, cannolis, Italian cannolis, fresh-baked muffins, Italian cream, clotted cream on scones, homemade scones. Kind of a girl party, but really, the food. (laughs) And gifts. And here was a mother and her three daughters together celebrating and loving and embracing one another with the love of their friends in proximity. I wish I could have been there. I had a previous commitment in Austin, Texas yesterday. I went and spoke at uh, one chapel, Pastor Ross Parsley. And then I had a previous commitment this morning. So I couldn't be in New York. It's here. But I just relish the fact that the four women in my life, in my family, love each other and express it and show it and are unashamed to say, I love you. Now, that's a familial, family, storge kind of love. Parents sometimes have got to grow to learn how to express that to their children. Yes, you're my child. You're the flesh of my flesh. You know, I've born you. It's, it's often said, you know, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. <laughs> I, I don't subscribe to that philosophy. When I was a child, though, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. He said, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish ways behind me. Love should be the measure of your spiritual maturity, not the expression of the gifts of the Spirit in your life as a a sign of spiritual maturity. I think some Christians think, Look how spiritual I am. I can pray. I can minister. I can go to missions. I can give my body. I can give my everything I have. And they measure their spiritual maturity by the level of their gifts and expression. Paul says, no, no. Not of our use of the gifts or operation of any of the gifts of the Spirit. Love should be the measure of our spiritual maturity. And storge is that mutual affection. And here's where I would like to close today. I have... Uh, some sets of scriptures here and about six things that I want you to fill in. Could I get a couple of guys? Did we get the rest of them printed? Here, Joe, this is six. They're divided in six, so one stack per table. There you go, just one stack per table. We must demonstrate our love. And here's how, here's how we most often and most easily learn how to demonstrate our love. In our family. If you can't love your parents, if you can't love your brother who you can see, is this not a verse as well? How can you love some, something or someone you cannot see? Our, our families are the incubators for love. They are the testing ground, the proving ground for love and how we express it. A mother loves a father. A man loves his wife, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. And 
demonstrating those kind of things of how Paul taught a husband to love his wife and lay down his life, give his life for her, even as Christ gave his life for the church whom he loved. A husband loves his wife and shows it in ways that cost him and are sacrificial. A mother sacrifices for her children. She gets up early. She makes sure kids are fed and ready to go to school and well combed and their hair is straight and they have a sack lunch with a, used to be a bologna sandwich. What's the healthy, a carrot sandwich? I don't know. <laughs> they make sure they got something to eat. They, they greet them with milk and cookies after school. They take them to the rehearsal and to the piano lesson and to the basketball practice. And on Saturdays, they spend all day at games. I know this because this is my life, has been my life ever since I got married. Married now 38 years this coming year. And people used to ask Becky and I, what is your hobby? What do you all do as a hobby as a couple? And through the years, very easily, we go to our kids' games and events and concerts and tournaments. So we do that because not, we, we don't like sports. We like our kids. We do things for our children not because necessarily that's what we would do if we could selfishly pick our schedule. We do for our family because we love them. Storge love is a mutual affection. Number one. On this little outline, I'm just going to give you some six things to write in. Number one, I want to encourage you very simply, just be nice. Just be nice. Here's the storge word used in Romans. The Greek is translated here, be kindly affection. Kind of phileos storge, phileos storgos, or whatever the Greek, it's a combination of two words, friendship and kindness. Be kindly affection to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Here's how our family, what would you like to do? What would you enjoy? Rather than, here's what I want to do, and you all get with the program. My way or the highway, that's not love. Love is giving preference to one another. Ephesians 4 verse 32 says it this way, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, notice, Forgiving one another just as Christ forgave you. And this leads me to number two. Be forgiving. So be nice, be kind, and be forgiving. Matthew says it this way. Jesus, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive, your Father will not forgive you. That's pretty plain. If I want to walk in forgiveness and receive it, i got to extend it. That's why forgiveness is a daily process. Just like the Bible says His mercy's new every morning, our forgiveness should be new every morning to the people that have either rubbed us the wrong way, stepped on our toes or hurt us or offended us. Mark 11, when you're praying, first forgive anyone that you're holding a grudge against so that your Father can forgive you too. I can't really have a prayer meeting with myself and the Lord. I can't really get further down the road in my prayer life until I first can forgive whoever it is that I'm holding something against, even in my mind. Last week, Pastor Brady used the term, who owns you? Is there somebody that owns you in your mind that's offended you or hurt you and you just can't get it? You have to let it go right there at the altar in your prayer time. Number three, we have got to 
control our mouth. David talks a lot about it. The words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart being acceptable to you, Lord. James says it this way. We all make a lot of mistakes, but those who control their tongues can also control themselves in every other way. It's like a bit in a horse's mouth, a rudder on a ship. It can turn the big ship and the big horse just by one pull this way or that way. That's our tongue. We can control the rest of our life if we can get a hold of our mouth. Peter said it this way. All of you should be of one mind, full of sympathy, loving one another with tender hearts, humble minds. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate. And don't pay back. You know, pay back. I got... I, I, I heard one woman say that I love very much and I respect very much. She said, I don't get mad. I get even. Just ugly. Just ugly. Don't repay evil for evil, he says. Don't retaliate when people say unkind things. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. You have to say not only, oh, I forgive you, but you have to say, bless you. Say it with me. No, you have to kind of lift your eyes and lift in your voice. Bless you. If you want a happy life, this is what he says. If you want a happy life, and I believe you do, I know I do, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. James 1, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak. God gave you two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you talk. Let the... Anatomy, be your example here. And what does it lead to? Being slow to get angry. Slow to take offense and get angry. Number four on the back, do unto others. This is the golden rule. This is the best thing Jesus ever said. Do for others what you would like for them to do for you. If you want people to be nice to you, you be nice to people. If you want your parents to respect you, you respect them. Try sowing a little bit of that seed and see that the repayment is the summary of all that is taught in the Law and the Prophets. Doing for others what you would have them do for you. Number five, walk in agreement. Little verse in the back of the Old Testament, minor prophet Amos asked this rhetorical question in Amos chapter 3, verse 3. He very easily and very simply says, How can two walk together except they be agreed? And the answer is, you can't. You just can't go together. You can't walk together. You can't find common ground unless you find some agreement. So when I say agreement, I don't mean this big change. Give up your position. Forfeit your values and your principles. No. Adjust just a little bit. If I'm driving out here on I-25 and I'm going to change lanes, I put my blinker on. I let them know I'm coming. I give them a hint. I'm coming your way. And then I don't go and make my change of the lane. No, I ease. I change. I adjust and glide. And about five or ten seconds later, I'm in the next lane. When you're in a relationship, give people that indication that you're coming their way. Let them see your blinkers on. I'm heading your direction. And then don't just go and crash into them. Glide that direction through your actions. Let them know that your heart is tender, that you're moving slowly. You're wanting to come their direction in love, in kindness, in preference, in preferring them over yourself. And then Psalm 133, one of the very shortest and sweetest 
let me highlight it. He says how good and how pleasant, how wonderful it is to dwell together in harmony and unity and love. It's like oil. What does oil do? It lubricates. It smooths out. It makes things, takes, takes away the friction. And in verse 3, he says there, in that place of unity, in that place of a lack of strife, there God commands a blessing. In your family where there's an absence of strife, God comes in and says, Wow, be blessed. And that's what I want for you. I want the blessing of God, the love of God that's expressed between family members to be real. And then finally, don't argue. I use the word strife because it's a Bible word. The first time my wife ever heard me say that was when she was my girlfriend of about three months. And I said, you know, in the family that that I'm going to have, hint, hint, hint with you, hopefully, the family I'd like to have, we're not going to have strife. And she smiled. She said, who uses the word strife? I said, well, James wrote it in his book, Avoid Strife. It's a good King James word. It's a joke. But you have got to avoid argument, harshness. Here's what he says. Let no foul, polluting language or evil word or unwholesome or worthless talk ever come out of your mouth, but only such speech that is good and beneficial to the spiritual progress of others and is fitting for the need and the occasion, that it may be a blessing and give grace and God's favor to those that hear your words. Here's the James. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Strife. So, as a highlight... Be nice. Be forgiving. Watch your mouth. Do unto others. Walk in agreement. And just avoid the argument. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the love of God, which is demonstrated in our actions, would be real, that our words would be your words, that our actions would be your words. I thank you, Lord, for a family that not only understands and does your word, but for families that do your word. Not just hearers, but help us, Lord, to be doers and actors of your truth. We pray in the name that is above every name. I bless every family that's represented here. May your love be so real that we can go home and close the door and feel and sense and acknowledge the presence and the love of God in our families. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's thank David for coming this morning. Thank you. It's a beautiful way to start our four-week series on the loves and parental love. So, David, thank you. Uh, You're dismissed. We'll see you next week. If you're interested in Macedonia, we'll have a meeting right after the second service in the missions office. But blessings and peace. We hope you've been spiritually encouraged by listening to this podcast. More podcasts and information about the College and 20-somethings ministry at New Life Church in Colorado Springs can be found at newlifechurch.org forward slash Sunday School.